narrative of scripture. We've been doing so from a sermon series that has influenced me by a pastor by the name of Louis Giglio that you can find all of this material or at least some of it because some of it's from the sermon series and some of it's from I guess the workings of my own prayer life obviously as your as your lead pastor. Uh, but we're, we're in the book of Acts this morning and what we've been doing is we've been looking at unlikely characters who did amazing things for Christ and uh, for his kingdom work and for the church. And what, one of the things that we've been telling you in this whole idea of people of the fine print is that in the narrative of our lives, we were never meant to be the superstar. We were never meant to be the main character. And I think the reason that that's worth doing a sermon series on is it stands in direct contrast to everything culture has taught us. So what I've learned from a young age is that I am the centerpiece of my own story. If I believe, I can achieve. If I believe in self, then I can elevate self. And the most important person to love, and I know this is controversial, but I'll just bring it up because it's, that's how we operate. The most important person to love in culture that I've been told, specifically in therapeutic training, is who? Me. Self. Love thyself. And I will just tell you, I want to kind of rat people out without writing them out. I don't like social media, but I have a fake account so I can see what happens at the church. You'll never know who I really am. I have like no friends. And uh, it's just so I can see everything that's going on because um, I love new life. And there is a lot of stuff in our church where it's like this, this self-idealization of loving self, loving self. The most important person you have to love is self. Like there's a lot of bad theology that floats around new life. And, and I want to bring that to light. I, I don't even know like... You're attached to new life like thousands of people are on social media. Um, but I will just tell you, that's actually the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us. That we love Jesus and he loves us and he transforms us and we're the people of the fine print and we are the extras in the story in the movie of life and Jesus Christ is the centerpiece. And I, and I told you as we started this series off that that we get that way out of whack, and we learn it from an early age. And, and, and I told you this story of, you know, my, my boys are in football right now, and, you know, go Cavs, they're undefeated, and nothing could stop them. And they go to Northern, and they play. Well, my younger son watches while my older son plays. And, and it's like they're just conquering the world, and nothing can stop them, and they're kind of the center of their own universe, right? And then I know as a 42-year-old that no matter what you accomplish at that age, it all comes to an end, and it kind of comes crashing down on you where you realize then you graduate and uh, not a lot of people from Aberdeen, South Dakota are going to the NFL or NBA or whatever. And then you get to see, okay, I'm not as big of a deal as I think I am. And that's okay because that's actually the narrative of scripture and it's not self-exalting, it's Christ-exalting. And so we're people of the fine print. And so what I want to do is I want to just recap this, this idea that's going to permeate all that we talk about for the rest of the series, and it's already been the capstone. It's this idea, if you haven't written it down yet, the church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. That's the idea, and that's the way it's supposed to be, and it's beautiful in that. And so as we look at these now unknown characters, there are these two characters that we're covering today. They are a married couple. And so, yes, we're going to talk about marriage from a different perspective. And the goal of this examination of scripture is for us, if you, who in here is married? Who in here wants to be married? Not as many people, okay? That's future therapy. You can pay someone for that. I'm not meeting with you about that. I'm too busy right now. But our goal is to be inspired like them. And what I want you to write down is, is somewhat 
For me, counterintuitive, it's something that if I wouldn't have studied this a little further and listened to some people smarter than me, I don't, even as someone who's worked with married couples for a long time now, I don't know if I quite would have caught this, and so I think it's critical. And when things aren't something you'd naturally think of, then they become sticking points, and in that, they can really teach us something, and we can hold on to messages like these for a long time. But what's so critical about this couple is not that they were flashy, and I want you to just take note of this. This couple's core strength, the reason we want to be inspired to be like them, is that they were on mission together. And I know that sounds simple and it sounds like, well, that's obviously a good thing, but think about it through this lens. When we talk about marriage at New Life, guilty as charged, we do throw so through the lens of scripture and we start bringing things to light. Like uh, something you'll hear over and over again is husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church, right? Ephesians, Paul says it, Jesus enforces this idea. And so we teach it obviously at new life. And so when you love your wife like Christ loves the church, you love her sacrificially. And it's this moral idea of if you treat someone like that, you're probably going to have, you know, the marriage that God intended you to have because at the heart of sin is selfishness. And so we want to submit to Christ in that. And we want to put ourselves second, if not last in our marriage. And so we talk about things like that. And then we talk about more controversial things like the Bible actually says Uh, very clearly that wives are supposed to submit to these husbands that love them like Christ loves the church. And we talk about that type of reality in the context of marriage. And then the the moral things, Christ says to be faithful to your bride. And so then we even go to books like Malachi in the Old Testament where uh, God is just furious with his people because his people haven't been faithful to their brides. And so we talk about infidelity a lot at New Life. But I heard this week something I want to bring to light that with that, what we rarely talk about is this idea of a healthy marriage being on mission together. And so in this compartment over here that we talk about 90% of the time when we talk about marriage, we talk about morality. This is what it looks like. This is what a moral marriage looks like. And what I want to do today is I want to shift that to a narrative that's not just moral, but missional. Because I think there are, and this is what I heard this week, it's not my idea, I think there are two overriding principles that guide the human heart. There are two, in a way of saying, there are two great longings in the human heart, and you can write them down. Intimacy and impact. Everyone wants those two things unless their, their psyche has been disrupted or they're, they're, they, they don't know they want it, but there are two things that drive what they really are looking for in their core relationships. Intimacy and impact, and you can write that down. And these two concepts are interwoven into this process of the two becoming one. And so we understand the intimacy. We understand the morality. But do you understand this, that one of the reasons you're going to have a thriving marriage isn't just because you follow this moral code over here. The other reality is you are going to have a thriving marriage like Christ has intended you to because you are not just living with intimacy, but you're living with impact and you are living on mission together as a couple. There's a word for that if you're still single. That person that you're attracted to, that you keep noticing, do you see yourself, look at me, on mission with them 20, 30 years from now? That's the story of this married couple in scripture. We don't just, kind of a dream crusher here if you're single, we don't just stare into one another's eyes for eternity. We link hands and we run together for the cause of Christ. Here's where the proof's in the pudding, working on the flip side of it when people aren't still together. One of the most common things you'll hear, why marriages break up, 
is they will say this in secular circles and sadly in Christian circles, they'll say this, and it's, it's kind of even written in the divorce code. It's, well, we just went in different directions, right? Who in here has heard that? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't working, so we went in different directions. And here's what they're really saying. What, what they're not saying by that is, you know, I, I was a plumber and she was a librarian, and it just didn't quite work out because we didn't have the same, you know, I mean, that's not what they're talking about. They're, they're saying that we had this like-mindedness when we said, I do, and when we said our vows, and then slowly over time, and, and in a sense where we didn't quite see it coming, we drifted apart, and what they're saying is, on mission together. That we weren't about those same things that we thought we were about. And so that's why this is so critical. And then, then here's, here's the thing I'm going to close with that I'm going to give away now. The strongest marriages, the strongest marriages are connected to the greatest mission. Spoiler alert, that's the closer. I'm going to say it again at the end. But I want you to hear it now because if you forget everything else I said, that's what you need to remember. The strongest marriages are connected to the greatest mission. Military people get this. Chuck's a 20-year Marine. And once a Marine, always a Marine. I had a Marine guy call me out on that. He said, talk about Chuck like he's past tense. And he's still a bulldog. He's still a beast. And uh, I know that about him. He's greatly intimidating to me. I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of Chuck. But, uh, <laughs> but once a Marine, always a Marine. And here's how the military works. It's not just rules, right? There's rules. I got a friend whose daughter is at West Point right now. There's rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. And they try to break you down with that. But more so than the rules is the mission. That's why you give your life to the Marine Corps. Amen? All right, that's why you do anything for the cause because it's mission. And the strongest marriages, just like the military, are connected to the greatest mission. And so here we go. Long opener, but here we go. We're ready. Acts 18, starting at verse 1. Here's the couple in the fine print. After this, Paul. And so the second half of Acts is all about Paul's missionary journeys. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila. I love how matter of fact the Bible is. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. And I'm going to butcher these names, so just whatever. Recently come, comes from Italy, came from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because, and here's the history lesson, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and then he went to see them. So here's the backstory. We actually get a historical account of this outside of the narrative of Scripture. The second half of Acts is mostly about Paul's missionary journeys, and he ends up moving quite a bit. He gets beaten, he gets murdered. It's not, it's not fun, but it's fruitful, and he's on mission. And he starts meeting people that when he's in prison and he's writing his letters, start getting these shout-outs because they mean the world to him. This couple fits that narrative. And so you see now this married couple on mission enter into the narrative of Paul's account of his missionary journeys. And in the extra biblical account of this moment, a historian wrote about this idea in history that Claudius got rid of all the Jews in Rome who continually made disturbances at the instigation of the Christos. And so he's talking about Christ. And Claudius is going, he's basically saying this. That Jews start getting saved, he doesn't know he's saying this, Jews start getting saved and it caused turmoil in the synagogues and so he just makes a simple analysis He says, okay, you guys need to go. You need to get out. And so this married couple fits into that paradigm. And Priscilla and Aquila now end up in Corinth and they set up a business making tents for all those who got an A plus in Sunday school over the years. What was Paul's occupation? What was it? He was a tent maker, so you see that connective point right there, and we're going to read about that in just a second. 
And so as they make tents, at some point in the story, they meet the Apostle Paul. They're kicked out of their homes. And look at verse 3 with me in chapter 18. And because he was of the same trade, tent maker with tent maker, he stayed with them and he worked. For they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And so Paul now moves into the home. My father-in-law is with me in church today. I always say he's a great mentor in my life. He lives by this 48-hour rule, and this is his theory. He says, after 48 hours, nothing good happens when you share the same home. And uh, I found that to be true with him for sure. But, uh, but they opened up their house, and they're so hospitable. We're going to get to that in a second. And because they're obedient and because they're behind the scenes, they say, Paul, you know, we're going to help you out. They help him out financially even. They're generous with him. He goes out. They're still making the tents. He goes out now in these synagogues and starts preaching this controversial but saving message of Jesus Christ, and it's working, right? And then what we know is when he ends up in Corinth, now, you know, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We have this church that's being formed, and Paul's out front. But his family friends, this married couple, is living on mission, and they're supporting him, and they're bringing him into the home, and they're vital to the process. Their marriage is on mission, and it doesn't get a lot of shiny appeal, curb appeal, but it's vital to the progress of the gospel. So the first thing I want you to write down is this, that when you have a marriage on mission, missional couples, how do I know if I fit the category? Missional couples are hospitable. They're hospitable. They bring people in. That doesn't mean that they have to be outgoing. That doesn't mean that every night you have to have 50 people at your house. But when you get those key opportunities, the Bible says in 1 Peter, show hospitality without grumbling. When you get those opportunities, you pick the gospel over preference and you bring people in because Christ loves them and you decide to love them too. And that's what they did for the apostle Paul. He's a tent maker. He comes into the home. He moves with them. He stays in the home. He goes out. They take care of business in the home. It's time to move from this place where this ruler wants them out. And so they leverage everything in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. They, move the, uh, they get the moving truck along. They lose their home. They truck along. They lose their business. They truck along. They stay focused. They stay hospitable. And they do so without grumbling. And this is what I want to bring to light. This is powerful stuff. Have you ever had someone do this in your life? I was thinking of this story this week. I got a few pictures. We'll show them in a second. I was 18 years old. I knew it all. I had life figured out at 18. I was homeless. That sounds so dramatic, but let me explain. I wasn't actually homeless. I chose to be homeless for a summer. And me and my best friend, who also coincidentally had everything figured out in life, decided that we were going to take a road trip. And we were going to, because we weren't that talented in basketball, we were going to find a school. I remember I had a, a school that was interested in me playing basketball for them, and it was an engineering school, and I wasn't smart enough. And I thought, is this how this is going to go? So then I thought to myself in my pagan ideology, I bet you a Bible college would take me because they're not very good. And so we went around to these different schools, and then we ended up to this Christian school in Texas, but we spent at least half the summer, as I remember it, traveling around, and we, this is what we thought. And I think back, and I go, where were my parents? And uh, they, I don't think my mom's listening this morning, so whatever. And, and, and I just took off in my best friend's truck. It was a Ford Ranger. It was like a 92 Ford Ranger. And we weren't technically homeless because we had covering because it had a camper shell over it. 
And we took off with $200 each because that would never run out, right? That would never run out. And it turns out my best friend, I knew this, he was, he's incredibly intelligent. We're like brothers. And he's incredibly talented. He's an incredibly influential personality. I was definitely the Ernie to the Bert on that one. Turns out, like, this is his life now. We got some pictures. He, he, is, he is an absolute phenom in art. And he lived here. He is one of the most talented people you'll ever meet. He's, he can be incredibly annoying at the same time. Um, he's, he's actually Jewish by descent. He's, he's a Christian. He's messianic. Um, but uh, he always told me about Jewish people because we're talking about Jewish people in the text. He said, if you have two Jewish people in a room, you'll get three opinions. And I never really knew what that meant when I was in high school. And then I started figuring out as I got to become like a brother to me, this guy's got an opinion here, an opinion here. And it's like he, he will play devil's advocate in every area of my life. And we're spending all summer together. We spend every day together. I like lived at his house growing up for a variety of reasons. I was just basically never home. And this is his life now where he's probably like a top five sculptor, sculptor for sure in the country. But this was his life when we took off with $200 in the back of a Ford Ranger. You see how I'm kind of always playing second fiddle to this guy? This is us 23 years ago at 18 years old traveling around the country with $200. And so here's the story. We're traveling around and shocker, we run out of money like just straight up. We don't have food. We have nothing. We got to figure out some gas stuff. So we decide because we're weak in our faith, we go, you know where we should go? We should go to church. And so we go to, and in the South, it's different with church. Churches are big and everyone goes and you have to at least act like a Christian, right? Doesn't mean you have to be one. You have to act like one. And so we ended up in this church and we ended up in this Sunday school class and there was this guy, he was probably my age now and he had a wife and children and in this big setting, they broke into small groups for high school and college kids. And he was our small group leader. And we shared with him our story. He said, what are you all doing here? And, and, and I remember going, well, we're trying to figure out. We got this basketball team in Waxahachie we're going to go try out for. And that's where we both ended up going. But uh, right now, we're broke and we're homeless. And we barely have gas money to go anywhere. We're trying to get the, this school. And he goes, well, you know, for me, my job at the church is I am in charge of the homeless shelter and the food distribution center. It's a big church. And so he takes us to this place. He's so hospitable. He gives us a whole bunch of expired food. And then, and then it's like, that's how I fell in love with the Bargain Mart in Aberdeen, just so you know, a little side note. And then he says this, he says, I don't know you guys real well, so my wife and kids are gonna stay somewhere else, but you guys can stay at our house tonight. It was the night when Jordan hit that game-winning shot for his sixth title, I'll never forget it. And we stayed with him, and I remember we'd been in the hot, humid weather, and we were from a climate that was dry. We were exhausted. Him and I, Ben and I were fighting all the time, and you know, we were sleeping in a tent, and then the tent blew apart because of a windstorm, and we were back, and it was just a wreck. We had no money. So he gave us some resources, he gave us some food, and he let us stay in his house, I believe it was for two nights, and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that hospitality. And so him and his wife just had this vision, and they backed it up, and she left the home because we were just transient teenagers that probably, you know, we could have been mass murderers. But, but I'll never forget that time in my life, and I thought of that story. I thought, that's what it looks like when a married couple's on mission together. That's what this couple's doing for Paul. And they all move to Ephesus. The, the, the plot thickens. They stay in Ephesus. Paul leaves again. But check out what happens in Ephesus. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. 
Cyria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, so they stay together. It's Centrea. He had his, cut his hair for he was under a vow and he came to Ephesus and he left them there. So they stay, he leaves. But he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period of time, he declined. But taking, on, taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he came up and he greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. And so now they split ways. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia. And he's strengthening all the disciples. He's got this out front ministry. And behind the scenes is this married couple. And here's where we're going to conclude it. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. The Bible says that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now check this out. Here's the theology. Though he knew only the baptism of John. And so this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they had some theology. They had some training. They were following the greatest mind of all time, the Apostle Paul. And he knew only of the baptism of John, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Right? So this guy who ends up becoming a big figure in the early church has some theology that has gaps in it. And here's what they do. They don't trash him. They don't go, oh, this guy doesn't get it. They, you know, he thinks he's a Christian. He's a false convert. They don't play that game with him. They go, you know what? Our job is to mentor and disciple and love people, and Paul's been on our life, and now we see this guy with giftings that we don't have, and so what we're going to do is we're going to speak into his life more accurately. And then the, he crosses over to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him uh, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who were through grace had believed, for he had powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so now you see in the early church, Apollos rise to the scene, but behind Paul is this couple. Behind Apollos is this couple, and they're just working this plan of God in their life through hospitality. Change is happening behind the scenes. And here's the second thing that I want you to write down. Missional couples, missional marriages bring others alongside them. You guys see that? They bring him alongside. And they're loving him and nurturing him. Apollos ends up a big deal later on in Scripture. Right, to the likings of, of people like Peter. He's central to the process. And here's what's so beautiful as the narrative ends. And then I'm going to just apply a few simple ideas that I think are critical for us to hear. But the third thing that we learned from, I learned from the study this week is this. Missional couples are faithful to the end. To the end. It's not the first day of your marriage when you say I do that's so critical. It's the last day that leaves the legacy. They're faithful to the very end, and that's what makes them so beautiful in Scripture. Paul's talking about people of the fine print several times. In 1 Corinthians, he says, the church sends you greetings. This couple is specifically mentioned. They're still tent makers. They're still funding the ministry. They're still funding the local church. They're still meeting. They're having people now come into their house. They're having house meetings where the gospel is going forward. Again, in Romans, as he's closing out the book of Romans in 16, he says, greet my fellow workers who risk their necks for my life. He specifically calls out these two. 
And so we don't know what they did, but we know this. They risked their life for Paul, and they risked their life for Jesus. Faithful to the end. Meeting in the home. And then he writes this intimate letter to the local church in 2 Timothy. This is the last book before he goes to be with Jesus, and he's murdered. In his last words, he tells the time of my departure has come. I'm not going to make my out of this alive. Talks about how he loves Timothy. And then one of the last things Paul ever says is this. With just to hear the passion in his voice and his pen. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila for me. Tell them I love them. How many times have I been beaten up for Jesus? Left for dead? Remember that time Barnabas and I, we went on this missionary journey and people thought we were dead and we were outside of town and then God says, I have different plans for you and then he, went, he goes back into town and he preaches the gospel again and people get saved and he has these people of the fine print in his mind and he knows his time's coming to an end and this humble couple who's a power couple in humility he says, would you just greet them for me? They've risked their necks for me. They've funded me. They've helped me with the tent thing. They've, they've planted church. They were a vital in the process of Apollos. Would you just kind of let them know that I love them and see if they're okay? That's how missional marriages work. How beautiful is that on your last day of marriage that you go, you know what? We had our ups and downs. We drove each other crazy at different points. It wasn't all smooth sailing, but we were on not just, we weren't just love and love together. We weren't just following this moral code together, but we had this exciting thing as we go now to meet Jesus together where we were going in the same direction even though our lives weren't perfect. Amen, there's a word for us this morning. Hear me say this. Missional couples, they're faithful to the end. That's the beauty of this whole thing that we're on, this mission of God when we get married. And what's gonna carry you in your marriage is this same track that you consciously decide that you're not gonna derail from. Amen? How many times do you hear that outside of a gospel presentation? You don't hear this type of talk. You want to know what's something different about new life than some self-help stuff you hear from therapy or anything else outside of this place? You're not going to hear this conversation. You're not going to hear about marriages that are on mission together, faithful to the gospel, and then that bringing all sorts of marital satisfaction. So here we go. Just a few pastoral insights for me to you. The first thing is this. Anyone single in church? I know 11-11, there's a higher concentration of you, but I think there's some of you in church today. And so for all the single ladies from Beyonce, here you go. Are you ready? Number one, there's just a few. When you're looking, because it's hard, and a good man is what? Come on, wake up. I'm insecure. A good man is what? Hard to find. That's true and hit the jackpot, all right? So if they aren't on mission without you, if they aren't on mission without you, they won't be on mission with you. If you're single and you don't write that down, that's your bad, I told you. If you are dragging them along because you want them to fit in the box that you've categorized of your life of I have to have this sacred cow of intimacy and connectivity and so I am going to beat them over the head with a club, drag them into this place called new life and I'm going to mold them and shape them like I'm God himself into the person that God's wanted him to be or her to be, right, vice versa, I can promise you this, this is just 
case study after case study after case study. They will give you a year or two, and then you're going to be crying your eyes out. You're going, why aren't they like this or like that? And they used to like this or like that. You drug them into a situation, and you know it. If they're not on mission without you, they're not going to be on mission with you. And what if, because who doesn't want this Priscilla and Aquila story, what if you just found someone that already had the same passion? I mean, look at me, ready? What if you just said, you know, I'm just going to wait, and it's hard because a good man is hard to find, but I'm just going to wait on the Lord. And I don't have to drag them because they're just self-initiating. And I don't want to stay single, but I will. Here's the second thing if you're single. If, I'm sorry, there's no if, you, you have to be the right person. This is so profound. No one could ever think of this. You have to be the right person to find the right person. Here's something I always tell our pastors. Like attracts like. In leadership, when you're going, man, why is everything so crazy around me? It's probably because you're crazy as a leader, okay? On a certain level, that's not always true, right? But on a certain level, over a period of time, as you have influence in your circle and you start picking your team, if everyone's messed up, it's probably because you are like attracts like. You have to be the right person to find the right person. And these people are hard to find. It's not like, I mean, if there was a lot of them, this sermon wouldn't have any impact. You'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, we need to be on mission. And everyone is, so let's go home and eat lunch. No, this is like the unicorn. This is the diamond in the rough. This is what you have to fight for and trust Christ for if you're single, that I am going to be patient until you make this known in my life. You have to be the right person first because when that missional person comes along, if that's not what you're all about, they're not going to be attracted to you. That's just the truth. You have to be the right person to find the right person. And I'll say this as well. Who you pursue is a clear sign of what you're all about. You can't say you're so close to Christ when you pursue people because of your own insecurity and baggage that are far from Christ because they're safe and they're easy to obtain. You can't say that you're at this place spiritually when your track record shows that you get into dysfunctional situation after dysfunctional situation after dysfunctional situation, like attracts like, and you are attracting the people that are like you. All right, is that clear enough? That, that seems muddy, doesn't it? Like, what does he really mean, right? Here's the married part. Here's the closer. It's just more of kind of the same. But, but I'll tell you this, just to elaborate. Write this down if you're married. Mission takes different forms. That's my experience. And so you, you look at this story and you go, man, look what they did. I don't know. I mean, that's intimidating for me, mainly because I don't know how to make a tent. But, but mission takes different forms. And so when you're in this covenant together, you, you can't look at couple, uh, you know, couple A over here and go, well, look what they do. And then you go home and men and women can both do this. And it's not fair. And they start comparing. And, and yeah, I would do that. But dot, dot, dot. No, mission takes different forms. And there could be a scenario where you know, you're already in a situation where the other person doesn't want to do anything with anything. And then you just need to lead by example. But a lot of times, mission takes different forms. And so I'll just give you some examples. Greg and Kendra. Always seem to find young couples in the church. Kendra doesn't like big crowds. She's not at the end level of doesn't like big crowds, but she doesn't like big crowds. And so they always tend to find five or six young couples. I'll go to their house and there's people over there with babies that are annoying me. And so I'm like, I'm out of that stage, but I want to say hi. 
And, uh, and they just kind of do that. They, they, they have this ministry like that. Or Ethan and Madeline downtown, I'm, thinking, I'm preaching in downtown today, they, they, they have this vision for reaching college students and they both have this passion for it. And so they have this Bible study after the uh, last service of the day and people from North Campus go over there. If you're in college, you can go over there for that. And they eat and they study. Or there's this young couple, there's a professor in our, a Jess that's at our church and, and her husband Robbie's a firefighter and they're both working with youth together, which is the most selfless thing on the planet. Right? And so they, they do that together because that's what they care about. So for Ann and I over the years, it's been me almost bordering on the platform and just getting fed from people, and then her going, dear goodness, please, when will it come to an end, hating that, sitting in the back of the second service, just you know, hoping that I won't talk to too many people because it drains her and it fills me, but she's always had people in her life that she has reached out to. A girl at a group home I used to work at calls Ann, Ann, I need this. And takes her to coffee and takes her to Target. People, stuff that nobody sees. She has these women in her life. She's got women in her life who are struggling in their marriages, struggling in their parenting, and she is there. She's the most loyal person I've ever met in my life. Just know that if you ever cross me, I'm not that tough. My wife is a beast, okay? <laughs> she can say whatever she wants about me, but you better not. That's Anne. So loyal. She's not even here, but I'm telling you the God's honest truth. There's no one I respect more than that woman. And so we have our way. It looks different, but we're on mission together. Mission takes different forms. And then the question becomes, what's yours? Like, what does that look like? That's a lunch conversation. What is yours? What does it look like for you? If it's not happening, it's not too late. Here's the closer. I told you I'd close with it. The strongest marriages are connected to the greatest mission, and I want to define strength. Here's what I want to tell you as we close. There's a, there's a bell curve out here. There's a percentage of us at New Life. We're thriving. Marriage has never been better. It's like every time we see each other, we sing, you've lost that love. And you know, Wait, that wouldn't make sense, but track the logic. You watch Top Gun together, you're like, wow, they still got it, and so does our marriage, right? And so you're just thriving, and you're like 5%, and we're jealous of you, where there's, it's like, what's up with that couple? And then you've got another people on the opposite end of the bell curve, where, man, they're, they're just about ready, if not, to call it quits. And then in the bell curve, because it's a bell curve, you have everyone else who's somewhere in the middle. And what I want to tell you, if you're thriving, if you're in the middle, if you're, if you're struggling and ready to call it quits, Number one, I would challenge you with this. Does your opinion and your emotion line up to the narrative and command and the obedience that's demanded by Jesus Christ in Scripture? Does that line up? Because he always trumps us if we're followers of Christ. And the second thing I would tell you is this. When you get on mission, and it's never too late, it has several secondary benefits. You wonder why your communication struggles? Is it possible that you have nothing real to talk about because you're doing nothing together in a bigger sense of mission? You wonder why the intimacy is lacking? Is it possible because you're not on mission together? Mission has secondary benefits that get elevated as the primary issue. 
And so when you are saying, yes, we're going to consecrate ourselves, we're going to love my wife like Christ loved the church, and you, know, you hear things from men like, when's the last time you did dishes? And, and those things are all important. But when is the last time you said, man, I've got to share my heart. I've got to be vulnerable with you. I am burdened by this couple in our church and this situation at my workplace. And man, can we just pray about it? Because I don't know if they're saved, and I don't know how things are going. And then the missional partner comes alongside and says, let's bring that to the Lord, and let's serve in this area together. Let's work with youth together. Let's do children's ministry together. Let's, I mean, let's live this life together at every turn for the glory of God behind the scenes, making tents, funding the ministry, knowing that the last day is more critical than the first. How many of those couples get divorced? Come on. There are secondary benefits. Communication improves. Intimacy improves. Fulfillment improves when you get on mission together for the gospel. And the gospel is this. Christ lived. Christ died. Christ rose again. And he has the Holy Spirit. His blood covers your sins. We're all a sinner in need of saving. We're all standing judgment before God because of our sin. But when he rises from death, we can rise to new life. And when he leaves the church and goes to heaven, Holy Spirit comes down, fills us, and we can live a new life in Christ as people of the fine print. And we do that together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And we just love you. We love you. Wherever we're at, we're all in a different space. We pray that you'd have your way and that you'd work on our hearts, that you'd work on our marriages, and that we would elevate you. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.